Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is April 28th, 2016. It's Thursday, so this is a listener call show, and boy, do we have a lot of them. I said I was out of calls last week, and that means I'm going to be doing a long show today, because when I did that, a lot of calls came in. I didn't get them all on the air, but I got a lot of them. I got ten. We're going to talk today about a bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about herbal water for your health. A guy is doing something with herbs and water and wants to know if he can do something else with it more. And it's kind of a cool little topic I think anybody could be doing, and it just makes sense. I'm going to put that on the air. Uh, got a question about bug out locations and how far away should a bug out location be? And what is my experience when I had my bug out location in Arkansas in my main home in Texas? What are my thoughts on that? Uh, we got a listener that wants to bring a small flock of ducks onto a small piece of property and wants to know if he can coexist with ducks in that environment. How much damage, if any, will they do to the land? And we can solve that problem, but the way he wants to do it, it ain't going to work. It is not going to work. Well, it'll work, but, well, you'll see when we get there why it won't. Um, we're also going to have another look at the Marauds discussion, right? So we had a listener call in and say, listen, Jack, it's not how would we physically build roads. People can do that. But without government, how would we determine where a road goes? How would we get, you know, to use the word, but the, the concept is easement. How, how would we have easement without government? It would be impossible, I mean, to have the ability to put a road to a place if we didn't also have the ability to, like, I don't know, Steal somebody's property under intimate domain? Would there ever be a way that we could build roads, you know, without government to at least determine where they go? And we'll talk about that one. It's another one of those questions that I think is missing the forest for the trees. We've got a guy who's a new grad, and he's about to have a wife that's a new grad. Uh, they're getting out of school with no debt. Uh, they both have great degrees. And they have opportunities for pretty good jobs right away, but they also have ambitions on a career from a standpoint of building their own business and what to do, what to do. Um, I'll give you my thoughts on that. Um, there were some children recently that were in uh, New York at the National Memorial for the 9-11 thing, and they decided to sing the national anthem, and they were told by authorities there, in fact, cut off in mid-song, you can't do that here. You can't do that here without a permit. My thoughts on that might surprise you. At least, if you want government to do certain things, it might surprise you why you might change your mind about that being completely ridiculous. We'll see why when we get there. Next up, I have a guy that's moved into a property, and now he's got all kinds of these dandelions growing all in his yard, and he knows they're not weeds, and he's happy about it, but he doesn't know if maybe the people there before him were using chemicals. Is it safe to use those for food and other things? How long do you have to wait when you take over a property before it's safe to just start eating food off the property? We'll talk about that, and that's a big old it depends. Uh, next, what about corruption in the organic label? Got a guy who says uh, went to go meet with somebody about buying meat selling under the organic label, and turned out the guy received some uh, eggs that he's also selling as organic, but they're coming from a place that they're not organic. They're not anything. They're just chicken eggs. They're not free-range, they're not pastured, they're not tractored, but they're being sold as organic. 
and they're being fed feed that you know isn't organic feed. What would you do about that without involving government? <laughs> it is government's little monopoly, though, isn't it, the organic label? I'm just saying. Um, then we have a report on automation in an airport, taking over an airport. Not the airplane part just yet, but all the stuff in the airport that you do while you're there waiting to get on your airplane. And we have a question about, to wrap things up, amending soil that's, well, it's sand. How do you amend sand to make it actually grow good stuff? We'll be talking about all that and a little bit of other stuff in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode in the year 1775, guys. This is when it all really begins with the American Revolution. I have one if by land, two if by sea. I have Parker Stand, the Battle of Lexington Green. I have the shot heard around the world, the battle for Concord Ridge. I have Parker's Revenge, run, run, run. I have Bunker Hill, a battle worth losing. And George Washington is appointed commander-in-chief. I'm going to actually read two of these. I was tempted to read them all, but it would take a very, very long time. If you really want to know America's history, I suggest that today, even if you don't normally, go over to tspwiki.com. Look at the year 1775 and read the whole thing. I'm going to read Parker's Stand, the Battle for Lex Battle of Lexington Green, and Parker's Revenge because they tie together. British General Thomas Gage doesn't want this fight, but he has his orders. He has received intelligence of military stores at Concord, including brass cannons. He sends 1,700 infantry the 20 miles to Concord. The troops reach Lexington Green at dawn and are greeted by less than 100 of the Massachusetts militia led by Captain John Parker. The militiamen are seriously outnumbered, but this is just a show of force. Then a shot rings out. Who fired first? No one knows for sure. Captain Parker orders his men to disperse, but it's too late. Muskets come up and fire, fire, fire. Eight of his men lay dead, one of them a black slave. Parker retreats and regroups. He wants payback, and he's going to get it. Real soon. Stand your ground. Don't fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. Captain John Parker at Lexington Green. My take by Alex Shrug, there is evidence that General Gage thought that the supplies at Concord had already been moved. They had. One wonders why he sent troops anyway. Certainly he was under pressure from his superiors to do something, so he did something. The orders he gave to his troops were met, meant to avoid creating any martyrs to the cause. Oops. Um, Parker's revenge, run, run, run. It's noon on April 19th. The British infantry leave Concord after their battle with the Concord militiamen that morning. Militiamen seem stunned. They fail to press the attack. The British are marching back to Boston, but they must travel through Lexington Green once more. Captain Parker and the survivors of the Lexington Green have laid an ambush for the British along the road. Unfortunately, Captain Parker has no experience with large forces in the field. The British commander has flanking, flanking forces out that could wrap Captain Parker's men fairly quickly if the terrain wasn't so difficult. When Parker's ambush is hit from the side, he retreats in good order and continues to hit the British forces along the road. This is no longer a treach this this road is no longer as treacherous as modern day as it once was. The British commander is wounded but is not dead. His officers can no longer hold the troops. They have stopped retreating. They are now running. My take by Alex Shrug, the British commander, Colonel Smith, took the blame because he delayed at Concord for two hours before leaving, apparently to have a good lunch. Making sure the troops are fed before a 20-mile march seems reasonable. 
but the delay allowed Captain Parker to organize his men for a substantial series of ambushes. A statue stands at Lexington Green, a monument to Captain Parker. He died of tuberculosis a few months after the battle. Man, there's so much in this. I really think you guys should read One If By Land and Two If I See, the real story of Paul Revere. Um, and some of the childhood myths that get shattered in that. Alex did a great job with that. I want to read a little note from Alex because he does such a good job of putting these uh, historical things together for us that he has at the top of this page. A few words before we begin. One, I cannot do justice in a few paragraphs to the bravery, brutality, and just plain dumb luck that will occur this year. Two, it is best to have a map of the terrain as it existed. Time has changed that landscape. Three, the militiamen are not quite the same as the Minutemen, but they work together. Four, to this day, no one, which, no one knows which side fired the first shot at Lexington, but the first shot at Concord was probably British. Five, and remember, both sides think this is going to be a short war. It has to be, right? And so it begins, as all worlds must, as all wars must at the beginning. I want to point out the Revolutionary War was eight years long. Eight years long. A lot of people, I think, don't know that. Eight years. When we, we study it in history, in school, we tend to just kind of, you know, what well, we won, we kicked the British out. Um, there was a tremendous sacrifice. There's some really good documentaries out there on the Revolutionary War that are really worth watching. Um, let's go on from there and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. I also want to remind you, if you want to uh, bone up on your plant propagation skills and take a course that will pay for itself by giving you the knowledge to basically print money by making plants, the Perma Ethos Plant Propagation Sale was on sale for the entire month of April. But it is April 28th, and there are 30 days in April, which means there are two days left of it. There is a link where you can learn more about it in today's show notes, but it is a $350 course that we are selling this month for $250. I would seriously consider taking this course uh, if you have the time and, and, and the money to do so. I've had a lot of questions about it. It is online. It is all in video. Yes, you get to keep the course forever. Uh, yes, you can download the videos. Yes, you can take it at your own speed. Yes, if you're a husband and wife, you can both take the course. Uh, yes, to just about any way you can come up with this, uh, but but it is is not like a classroom situation or a webinar thing. It is all recorded in beautiful, high quality video, high definition video. Uh, the editing is spectacular in it. It's done very very well. All the video together is a bit over six or seven hours, and then there's four hours of audio conference call with Nick and I answering questions on both propagation and the business side of things. This is really a great opportunity and great value. Speaking of great value, also, there's still some of the uh, TSP uh, special edition 
uh, top R beehives available uh, from uh, Elijah Springs Farm. You might want to check those out. Those are awesome. There's a post that I put out yesterday. Uh, they're serial numbered. They're, they're engraved. They're really beautiful. Uh, and there'll be 50 of them available. And they are available, uh, again, at Elijah Springs Farm. But the link to get them is on the uh, Survival Podcast website. You can see it in today's show notes. With that... Um, Let's go ahead and get into uh, your first question today. I want to let you know I will probably video one or two of my answers today and start putting those on video, uh, YouTube as standalone videos again. I think I have a really simple, easy way to do that. Maybe not the highest production value, but uh, it'll get it done and it won't take any extra time really. So uh, if you want to share certain segments of the show, or if when you call in for a call-in show especially, or you write in, if you think it make it maybe make a good standalone YouTube video, kind of note that, and I'll, I'll consider that when I'm picking out which ones to do. So go ahead, let's take that first call of the day. Jack, Brian from Delaware and an MSB member. My question is, do you think there is any health benefit to putting herbs in your water bottle? Details. I drink a lot of water at work, and... Every day when I leave the house before my shift, we have a pretty good-sized herb garden along the side of my garage between the foundation and the, and the sidewalk. It's probably 15 feet long and two feet wide. It's been there maybe four years, so it's pretty established. Um, and I usually grab a handful of mint and lemon balm and throw in my water bottle. It gives it a nice flavor and smell. Uh, keeps it fresh uh, through my shift. And I was wondering if I'm drinking... I don't know if you'd call it herb-infused water. I don't know what the definition of infusion is. Um, but is there anything else I could put in there if there is some benefit from it, kind of as a daily tonic since I'm already uh, kind of drinking herb water anyway? Uh, any other herbs you would recommend if it is of benefit? I currently have a couple different types of oregano, sage, mint, Lemon balm and rosemary uh, have quite a bit of it. Like I said, it's a pretty established herb garden. Um, I'm in southern Delaware. I'm about 10 minutes from the ocean. I'm zone 7-ish, I guess, 7A. Um, you know, real hot, humid summers, real cold winter. And that's it. I uh, love the show. Appreciate everything you do, and be safe. It's funny because as you were saying what you were doing, I was thinking of other herbs you could use, and one of the first ones I thought of was rosemary. Um, rosemary has um, a lot of really great properties. It's an immune stimulant. Uh, it increases circulation. It improves digestion. It has anti-inflammatory compounds uh, that actually has, has been shown sometimes to actually help some people uh, deal with asthma uh, symptoms. It's uh, been shown to keep help increase blood flow to the brain, um, improving concentration. So it's it's really a, a great herb, and it actually, as I covered in the recent show on uh, herbal medicines, has actually been shown to show uh, some anti carcinogenic properties. That's mainly with its use, you know, as a cooking uh, herb with meats when they're grilled at higher temperatures, with reducing some carcinogens there, but. If it can do that, it stands to reason it probably could do some other things. So that would be good. Uh, oregano is another one of those herbs that has a lot of those things going on. This is what I, I think people don't realize. Most of the culinary herbs, just about every single one of them, have antimicrobial uh, properties. Uh, they have antiviral properties. They have antifungal properties. Uh, they're high in uh, antioxidants, which helps prevent oxidation. 
Uh, they're high in minerals as well, and these infusions can extract a lot of those properties. You are making an infusion. That's what it would be called. In this case, you're making a cold infusion. If you actually wanted to improve the extraction uh, of your infusions, you could. I'm not saying you should, but you could basically make a, a tea, which is just an infusion, in the evenings with hot water, uh, strain it off, put it in your water bottle, throw it in the refrigerator, and it'd be cold by morning. And that would get more of those properties out. Basically, what you're doing is making a cold tea. Nothing wrong with that. So that's a that's one of those, you know, what, whatever you want, man. And I would just say, you know, try it. And what you might want to do is try, get a couple bottles, and make one with just rosemary, and make one with just oregano, so you know exactly what it's doing. And that can help you adjust your quantity so you can get a little bit of everything in there. If I was going to add something to your herb garden, some of the herbs I would consider adding uh, would be, you might really look at adding lavender, uh, both the sprigs of the leaves and the flowers, actually quite useful uh, for what you're doing and a lot of other health benefits to those as well. Another herb I'd look at adding, it is an annual, but it's a, it's a great plant and it's easy to grow in your climate, calendula. Uh, that's a, that's a, it's a, uh, they also known as pot marigold. And it's edible, it's medicinal, you can use the flowers and the leaves in your tea. So that's another, uh, one you might consider adding. Um, you know, and don't be afraid to use other things like, uh, you know, maybe some cinnamon or something that you actually buy and you can mix that in. Um, fennel would be great, uh, and, and have a lot of benefits as well. Uh, ginger, um, that's something you know, you can grow ginger uh, through your summers, uh, and you can definitely grow fennel up there. So that's another thing. Holy basil might be something, or sacred basil is also called. It's different than your sweet basil's. Uh, that might be another one you might consider. Um, trying to think here. I mean, you've got different varieties of mint, and different mints do different things. Um, passion flower would be another thing that's very calming, uh, somewhat sedative, but not like put you to sleep sedative. So that could be something more for your evenings. And uh, from there, I mean, you, you just kind of take it wherever you want. And just, you know, if you if you have a certain herb and you want to know what it, it, you know what it can do for you, just put that herb followed by health benefits into Google and you'll start finding information. And another thing that really I think is a better way to go, because most people that write these articles are probably selling something. I mean, just to be honest, whether they're selling the actual product itself or they're just trying to get hits for advertising or what have you, when you get into a little bit more scientific look at an herb, you start to understand more about what it does. So this is why I put so much effort into the four-part series on 40 herbal actions. And if you Google, uh, let's say, oregano herbal actions, then you'll get more scholarly type articles that will tell you actually what the herbal actions of oregano are. And then you can either listen to all four of my shows on herbal actions or uh, maybe a more you know productive thing would just be whatever action you don't really understand, just Google you know that term. So if you see you know um, anticoagulant and you're not sure what that means, well, Google it and find out what it means. Or if you see carmative, right, or expectorant or anything like antimicrobial, antibacterial, those are pretty obvious, right? Antiviral, those, those are the really obvious ones. But there's a lot of herbal actions. And in that herbal action series, I break down an awful lot of herbs that we just think is, uh, of cooking herbs that we don't really think about when we're using them in our cooking that have all these amazing properties. 
Herbs are an amazing thing, so keep doing what you're doing and just try it and uh, enjoy it. That's a good idea for others, too. Uh, right now, I'm making my own very high-proof peppermint schnapps. Last night, I went out and uh, I have this floating island in the middle of my pond uh, that I built out of PVC pipe and lattice. And I have three big pots of uh, peppermint. There were actually three pots, three big pots with little sprigs of peppermint shoved into them. And they were growing like two feet high. So I, I, I cut them back uh, and added some duckweed to the pond last night. And I, I brought them in. I'm like, I'll make more peppermint uh, plants. And so I shoved them into like three jars. And I still had a whole bunch of little ones. So I, I got a jar of, um, you know, high-proof high alcohol. I'm not saying how it got here. Uh, and uh, so I just shoved what was left in there, and I'm making a tincture, basically a peppermint tincture that we'll infuse with some sugar, and we'll end up with a pretty awesome, awesome adult beverage out of that. So herbs can do a lot of things for us. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Mark Hawk from California. I had a question about distance to a bug-out location-slash-vacation home. I know you used to go from Texas to Arkansas. I'm wondering how long that was and if you thought it was too long, just right. Um, We're looking for another vacation home. We need the benefits of it. And I'm just looking to see how far we want to look away from our current house. Thanks for all you do. Okay, so a question from a caller today is basically... How far is too far from a bug-out location? And I, I used to maintain a bug-out location uh, near Hot Springs, Arkansas. And my main property that I lived and worked at was actually in uh, Mansfield, Texas, which is just south of Dallas. That drive was about four and a half hours, uh, maybe four hours and 15 minutes if you were unencumbered by the female bladder. If you were encumbered by the female bladder and need to make more stops, uh, then it was more like a five-hour to five-hour, 15-minute drive. I would say as bug-out locations go, especially if you don't just want a bug-out location. And I really recommend that you don't just get a bug-out location. What you do is you get a, a recreational property, something that you can go hunting and fishing on, something that you uh, can enjoy time at, Uh, that is a, an investment for you. It has uh, the ability to do things for you beyond just be a fallback location. And that's how you have to see your bug out locations. They are fallback locations. Uh, they are where you go when for some reason where you're at ain't a good place to be no more. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that the shit has hit the fan, but it could mean that there was a storm that blew the roof off your house. And especially if you have flexibility with working remotely or something, you might go live at your bug out location. Or you've lost a job, and if you're smart, your bug-out location costs you less to maintain as far as expenses than your main home, and you might bug out because you're unemployed and sell your house for some capital until you figure out what you're doing. Um, hopefully no, none of those things actually ever happen. Hopefully your bug-out location never is actually used for bugging out other than for bugging out of the city to get a break. On that note, I would tell you from my experience, and we had that property for about seven years before we moved there for a few and eventually sold it. There's a reason we sold it when we moved back to Texas. It wasn't because we needed the money we could get out of it. It was because we had realized at that point that it was impractical at that distance for us and our lifestyle, especially when we decided when we moved to Texas, again, we were going to have a small farm, and animals keep you on property more and more. 
I would say the ideal distance. Now, again, ideal and what you can do, you know, what works for you is about two and a half to three hours maximum. That is far enough that whatever is affecting where you're at, you probably are not as affected by it at this other location. It's far enough away geographically that even during a major natural disaster that one of the two should have survived and been okay. Uh, whether it's a hurricane, a tornado outbreak. I mean, if you have a tornado outbreak and you end up losing uh, one home and another and they're two hours apart, man, don't... <laughs> Don't test your luck after that. That's that's you know where you start looking. At, oh, what's what's going on, man? Um, so the reason I say that with three hours or less, let's say on a Saturday and you have a place you can hunt, fish, forage, whatever. So on a Saturday you decide I want to go out to the uh, the retreat, uh, the bug out location, the vacation home, whatever you want to call it. I don't want to spend the night though. I just want to go out, maybe do some hunting, maybe do some fishing, maybe do some target shooting. Maybe just tend to a few things that need to be taken care of. I want to come home tonight. Okay, three hours out. Let's say we get up early on a Saturday. We leave at six in the morning. We're there at nine. Let's say we're going to be there for about six hours. So we go at nine, uh, three o'clock. And that means we're home for dinner at six. When you push it much past three hours, you just don't feel like doing it anymore. At least I don't. Now, I'm a guy that used to drive from Allentown to Hartford, Connecticut, and back in a single day sometimes uh, for certain things that needed to be done. Uh, but, you know, that was a loan, and it was as a part of, you know, work. This is something you would like to be more enjoyable. So my overall suggestion for you when it comes down to it is to try to keep your bug-out locations two to three hours away. Now, I know there's a lot of people that uh, hold themselves up as the rough and tough survivalists, and they're going to say, ah, you got to be in the middle of the mountain, and you gotta be with the zombies are coming, and the UN and the Blue Helmets and the New World Order is going to come, and you, you just you got to get out further and hide in the middle of Idaho. If you want to do that, that's fine. Um, but you'll have a property that in the end you probably won't like very much. Now, if you live somewhere not far, if you, you, know, if you live like in, in Coeur d'Alene, Uh, Idaho, and you want to go a few hours out from there in the middle of pretty much middle of nowhere, well, that would make sense for you. So that's the other thing that has to be factored in here. I give you these numbers, and you might say, but Jack, where I live, if I go two hours away, there's nothing but suburbs and cities. There is no bug out location. Okay, then you have to go further, or you have to change what you think you're talking about when you say bug out location. You might have other opportunities. For instance, I know people whose bug out location is a sailboat that they keep in a slip on a harbor. So it's a mobile bug out location. I know people that have a really, really, really nice mobile home. Like I'm talking a RV, and what they have are several pieces of land that are set up with simple connections for the RV, and they just pull in and hook up. So there's other ways to do things, and then that, that would make longer travel, a little more doable. But one of the biggest things you have got to factor into this is your lifestyle. What is your lifestyle at your current property where you live full-time? How how much effort is it to leave? Do you need a house sitter? You know, Can your animals go with you? you know, like we have a flock of 100-plus ducks. We need kind of a specialized farm sitter to leave. So... I'm at a point now where I'm, I'm looking for a second property, and I would like that second property to be within two hours. 
And that's tough financially with where I'm at. So it's all back to what we always say. It depends. With that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Charlie from Woodstock again. My question is about whether you think a person with a small food forest and some annual production raised bed kind of setup um, can live harmoniously with three to four free-range ducks. Um, the details. Uh, so I live on about two-thirds of an acre, and I have uh, a number of fruit trees, kind of a little mini orchard, some um, food forest stuff going on, uh, as well as annual raised beds. Um, my question is about um, ducks and how hard they are on the land and whether or not um, you would be able to effectively kind of free-range these guys and have them not really trample and eat everything um, that's on the property. Um, so I also have some chickens, and I know that when I, I let them out, you know, they really tear things up. You know, I've got about a dozen of those, so I keep them in a, a coop-and-run setup. Uh, but with the three to four ducks, I was wanting them to be able to kind of have free range of the property and not have to lock them up all the time. So I'm definitely interested in your experience. Obviously, uh, you've got a, had a ton more than I probably will ever have in my life, uh, so would value your opinion. Thanks for what you do, and I uh, love the show. Bye-bye. Okay, you can do this. You can do this, but you can't just do it the way you're saying. Like, so you got your raised beds and stuff, and you're just going to let your, you know, four happy ducks run around and have fun. Um, you can do this, but this is what you're going to have to do. Your raised beds for your gardens, where you're going to grow vegetables and things like that, this is pretty much the rule with ducks. If you will eat it, they will eat it. So you're going to have to fence them out of your gardens. There's a couple different ways to do this. One is I'm highly recommending right from the get-go that you plan on once they feather out well and they're old enough, you clip their wings. That's going to keep them in your property and out of your neighbor's property, and it's going to keep them from getting up on top of stuff. Domestic ducks do not fly that good in the first place. So with a clipped wing, it's all over but the, the quacking. Now, we don't even clip the wings of our ducks other than the Muscovies because they have enough space that they don't really do much with an effort to fly. Um, we've had a few troublemaker ducks uh, that are leaner-bodied, and those have been clipped selectively. But in your situation with a few ducks, I would just do that, and then that's a non-issue, complete non-issue at that point. Um, you go bigger breeds like Cayuga or something like that, it's really a non-issue. We see our Cayuga ducks, they have a hard time getting a run and starting flying over a 12-inch food pan. Um, but I would just say to do that and then fence your gardens in or when you talk about raised gardens, do things like we do with our tank gardens where we have stock tank gardens. Uh, they're sitting up on cinder blocks and then they're boarded in. They're nice and pretty and they're, you know, they're about, you know, lower chest, upper belly height on a grown man like me. And that just means it's up and out of tough sight and the ducks can't really get up there. So you don't have any problems with them. Everything else they'll probably be fine with. You know, they, they run in and out and around my fruit trees and berry plants and they may graze off some of the lower stuff, but they're really not doing anything a lot of harm. Some other things you're going to want to do is, is they, is they really kind of graze down an area. Make sure you're overseeding. Uh, one of the best things to overseed with, with ducks is just annual ryegrass. It's cheap. It helps cover the ground. It helps protect the ground. It grows fast. And the ducks don't generally eat ryegrass seed. It's too fine. It sticks to their craw or whatever. They just don't really like it. So that's, that's another consideration. The next thing I would say is you might really want to think about paddocking them. 
I know your, your property's pretty small, but, you know, from what you said, you could have at least two paddocks. And the beautiful thing about ducks is you only need a fence about three foot tall. So you could put a little three foot red brand style fence in cheap on a property your size, put a couple gates in it, and just, you know, make, they need a place to spend the night. Make sure they have a holding area and just make sure there's two ways out of it, you know, left and right. And, and rotate them so they don't overgraze. With a small number, it probably won't be a problem, but if you start to have a problem area, it makes it real easy to just keep them off of it for a while. The next thing you're going to need is a, a kiddie pool. Four ducks, one kiddie pool is fine. In fact, I'll tell you what work, would work probably even better than a kiddie pool for you. If you go to Lowe's, Home Depot, what have you, they sell uh, two different sizes of concrete mixing trays. There's a shallow one and a deeper one. I think the deeper ones are 15 gallons. I'm not really sure, but the deeper one. They're about 10, 15 bucks, something like that. Uh, they're really durable. They're really rugged. And with that number of ducks, maybe get two of those. And I would advise you to keep alongside of them like a, uh, like a half cinder block or something like that or like a paver, something that helps them in. And especially when your ducks are young, maybe have two of those and put one in there. It helps them get out if they have some trouble getting out, uh, those deeper steep walls. Think about this. In nature, all bodies of water in general, somewhere along them there's a, a plane out. It's not like a straight up and down. You know, generally slope down to banks. So ducks are not really designed to go up steps. So just think about that always with your ducks, giving them multiple ways out of the water. This is your other consideration would not want to tear your land up. They do not do what chickens do. They do not mess everything up, but they love mud. And they like to stick their meeks in mud, and they like to make a slurry. Wherever you put that water, there's going to be some of that going on. So you need to have a plan to move it every day. Move it every day. Repeat after me. Move it every day. You've got to. If you leave it for too long, they'll really defoliate, take it down in the mud, have lots of beak holes and stuff like that. If you move it daily and then seed over it with some clover, uh, some, some grass seed and stuff like that, it'll actually improve. Everything will get better over time with the ducks. That's what's happened here. And I'll also say, so like I said, they don't eat ryegrass seed. I'll tell you another thing they're not, they're not real fond of. If you get clover seeds and stuff like that that are nitro-coated, That means they have the bacteria that help them fix nitrogen already on them. They do that with a clay. It's like a, it's like either a gray or a pink clay that usually is on these seeds. It's completely non-toxic, but it probably tastes like crap. So they don't eat it. So that's great. And with four ducks, you should be fine, but fence your gardens in or put them out of reach. If you will eat it, they will eat it and move your watering systems around and you'll, you'll do just great and you'll be happy. If you don't do those things, you're not going to be happy. Hey, Jack. Um, I just have a comment about the people who say, but who will build the roads? Um, when they ask that question, it's not about who's going to physically build the roads. It's about, you know, how will the placement inside the roads be decided. It's not about um, anarchy. It's about the capitalism or, you know, um, the criticism is that sometimes decisions um, are made for the benefit of the community and the government at least pretends to do that. Um, so, you know, roads are a monopoly. Monopolies don't go very well with capital, capitalism. So, you know, how, how would the roads work? Meaning, you know, who would decide where the roads go and who can travel and what the toll would be, you know? Sometimes there are situations where, you know, medical emergency, you don't have time to go, you know, half hour that way. Instead, you have to just get there. So, all right, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Thanks. Okay, well, um, kind of 
repeating the question had some parts of it that maybe didn't come through audio-wise that well. I think I get the gist of it. The, the question is really a comment, and it, it, it's a follow-up from my piece about, well, who would build the roads in an anarchy last week? And a lot of what I said still applies, so I don't want to rehash too much of it, but we're back to this reality. Anarchy is not something you're going to flip a switch and we're going to go from a free, you know, a, a, a status society to an anarchy overnight. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And that means we need to be thinking along the timeline of we solve these problems as the opportunity to solve them presents itself. And if everything went perfect in the mind of most anarchists that are intelligent people and realists, you would be at least a hundred years away from a point where we've, we've, we've gutted the state all the way down to the point where we're, we're, we're finally to, willing to turn and go, well, who will build my roads? Okay. Who, who's going to do it? And how's it going to happen? And will it work? So it's a cat that has to be skinned so far in the future. It's not even worth worrying about. And you're, you're still thinking. In technology, that's roughly 100 years old, automobiles. As though by the time we got there, everybody would still be, you know, getting in a car, turning a key, burning gasoline to go down the road. When we have companies like, like Apple and Google and Uber that are building electric vehicles that are auto-driven. You get in one and it takes you where you want to go. And this is coming. I would say by 2020, Uber will probably have this, at least in trials in certain areas, okay? So, and there'll probably be somebody sitting there like a, like a, a pilot on autopilot in case it goes wrong, right? To, to get through regulatory hurdles and things like that in the beginning. But this is, this is technology that's coming. So, the way we'll even get places is gonna be changed by then. So, how much are we gonna worry about it? Okay? But, Let's say we were in an anarchy right now. How would it be done? How would it be handled? Well, first of all, people are under the assumption that because you're in an anarchy, and you keep using the word capitalism, and the problem with a lot of people use the word capitalism is that word does not mean what you think it means. There's actually two very different ways to look at capitalism. Capitalism is, uh, in minds of some people, and, and both are kind of right, but in the minds of some, is the control of the capital itself, the control of the monetary system. Okay, in an anarchy, you, you you couldn't have that type of capitalism. It wouldn't work. Capitalism, in the minds of most people who are favorable to way look at capitalism, is the concept of owning a business and having the ability to control that and private ownership. And so, anarcho-capitalism is a a belief by anarchists in that private ownership. And remember, you can be any kind of anarchist you want until you start telling somebody else what kind of anarchist they have to be. So you could be a socialist anarchist, an anarcho-communist, but you can't impose your will on others or it's not an anarchy anymore. But in all of these systems, historically, there is the concept of what's called the commons. So the commons might be that you have in a tribal system uh, that's as close to an anarchy as anything we would have, multiple tribes. And they would have areas that they had complete control over, and you could only come in if you were from another tribe by invitation or special arrangement. But then there would be larger areas that were communal, and that would be called the commons. In, in British 
early government, there were even commons where even though the noblemen owned, you know, huge swaths of land, those lands were available for anybody to graze with their, their sheep or their cattle. So that's commons. And roads would fall under the concepts of the commons. So there might be a need for some sort of payment to maintain and upkeep those methods of travel. But overall, the concept here isn't, well, how do we pay for it? How do we get somebody to do it? How do we maintain it? How do we figure out where we put one? Because this guy is stupid jerk that owns private property, doesn't want a road through his property, and if they're going to do it, he wants so much money we can't afford to put a road there, so how do we figure this out? Well, what you're actually saying then is without the state's ability to tell someone, I don't care if your family has owned this farm for 200 years and maintained it, we are going to take a great big giant piece of it, we're going to pay you jack diddly crap for it, And there's nothing you can do about it. And if you try to stop us, men with guns will come and arrest you or kill you. That's what you're saying. Without that threat of violence, at the literally at the point of a gun, we can't figure out, we just can't figure out where we're going to put a road. Let's assume that you're right. Okay. How many new roads do we need right now? Where do we need a road that there isn't a road right now? Those easements or commons in an anarchy or a minarchy exist. They're already there. We don't need a bunch more. We're technologically evolving in a way that's actually going to reduce the amount of vehicles on the road, and we're worried about building more of them. Now, we will always need roads. There will always be means of travel that will use that type of connection. I believe that. We're We are a long way, if ever possible, from the days where we go, beam me to here, Scotty, right? So there will be roads, and not everybody's going to have a, 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 you know, a vertical takeoff aircraft or what have you. But if you had a new development, say people decided we're going to go out and we're going to create our own little place here, and they needed to be connected to the existing road system, then we can come to agreements as to how we get that connection in place. The people putting the development are going to want to be able to access roads. So they have an incentive as they develop to look for places where that's possible and practical. And then in the end, you're back to the market deciding. If you want a piece of someone's property, isn't it only right that they should have the opportunity to negotiate with you for a price or to tell you no. See, what you're saying when you ask this question this way is that a citizen of the country, the United States of America, or whatever developed country you're in right now, exists in a state where they do not have a right to say no if government decides that they don't. That, that they, they can have their property taken. And you're saying that's okay. You're saying that's necessary. Think about that. As though there's no way that we could ever get paths, connecting places, without the ability to threaten someone that doesn't want that path on their property. And as for monopolies not working well with capitalism, that's absolutely correct. Because in capitalism, true capitalism, again, not control of the capital itself, not control of the monetary system, in a true, open, competing, free market, Monopolies are all but impossible. You can say that roads are monopolies, but if you actually had a completely free market, who knows how many competing technologies with a flat thing we just might develop. 
And as far as, but sometimes there's emergencies and people have to get to hospitals. Again, you're saying without the ability to threaten someone, we can't figure out how to get somebody to a place to receive medical aid. I just don't think that's the case. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Zach from Southern Utah. Here's my question. Could it be advantageous for me to seek employment coming out of college rather than jumping headfirst into self-employment? Details. I am a 23-year-old who is graduating in a year with a master's degree in accounting. My wife graduates with her nursing degree in a year as well. We have worked our asses off with part-time jobs and full-time jobs in the summer to stay completely out of debt, so we are not exactly desperate for a traditional job to start making student loan payments. I really want to use my education to help individuals and small businesses through consulting, tax prep, and other professional services, and I want to be self-employed. I have an offer to work for a big four accounting firm after I graduate, or I could seek opportunity at a smaller regional firm. I know that a job would allow me to expand my skill set, develop a professional network, and begin saving a large portion of my guaranteed salary for a large down payment on a house on some acreage. On the other hand, I could be spending the next few years hustling for myself, building up my business from the ground up, and realizing my dream. There is an opportunity cost to either choice. I love the show, Jack, and your passion for entrepreneurship has played a big role in helping me decide what I want to do with my life. I would love to hear what you have to say about this. Um, this is always one of those huge it depends, but let me just start out first by saying what a great position to be in. Two, two people with good, relevant degrees that are highly employable with no debt. But you can't do that. It's impossible. Don't you listen to the TV? There's no way you can go to college and work and get through it. You just can't do that anymore. Oh, maybe you can. Anyway, awesome, awesome, awesome. I would tell you that there is really good reasons on both sides of this to go one way or the other. If you go to work for somebody... You are going to get experience that you do not have. You have a master's degree and probably little to no relevant experience, unless you some of this part-time work and stuff was in bookkeeping and accounting, and maybe it was. But even with that, you don't have you know that real-world, big-picture view experience where you actually get to work in complex accounts and complex situations and learn about accounting in a way that is a hell of a lot more than just can you save a company money on their taxes, because... People think that's where an accountant's value is, and that is a big part of an accountant's value. But an accountant, to me, if you're really valuable, especially in larger businesses, when I say larger, I mean you know, 10, 20 employees, still what you would call small business in, in this economy. When I can give you my financials and you can look ahead and say, you know what, you're going to run into a cash flow problem in mid-August, and it's freaking May right now. You can see that where I don't. That's valuable. Oh, and if you do this, you can close that gap, right? Or, you know what? You're going to need a line of credit to get through this. There's absolutely no reason that you're not going to get through this if you have the cash flow to pay your people. The, the peak and valley here is obvious, um, but you're going to have to get a, obtain a line of credit. Well, the accountant that can put together for me the proof of that that lets me you know, get my first line of credit from a lending institution to do just that, where we can come out with paperwork and we can show them clearly, like, we've already identified this shortfall. We know it's going to be there. We've already taken the following steps to, to, to reduce it. But we're going to need, you know, $40,000 for 90 days. And we're telling you now, instead of two minutes before we need it, and my business doesn't suffer a huge hit because of that, that's valuable. 
That's the kind of experience that you can gain when you work with a larger firm. Now, I don't know what they're hiring you to do, and you may not have that kind of visibility and things yet. So here's what I'm saying. I'm leaning toward take one of these jobs, but I'm also leaning toward do the following. Take the one that's going to teach you the most, not the one that's going to pay you the most. Likely in your field, the one that's going to teach you the most is going to pay you the most. But I've always given this advice. And I've been given this advice for years and years and years and years. And if you look at my career path, it's exactly what I did. It's the advice that I gave to myself as well. Always take a job for what it can teach you. And when it can no longer teach you anything, if there's an opportunity to go somewhere else and learn something else, go there and do that. And so that is the approach that I would lean toward. Now, this is your life, and you have to make a decision. Here's my view of the problem going at it alone with somebody with an accounting degree and no real-world heavy-duty experience, I don't want you as my accountant. You might be a nice guy. You might have a great education. You might have a 4.0 GPA. But I don't have any confidence in your ability to do any of the shit that I just talked about, even if you can. I don't have any confidence that it's going to be done right. Now, if you have you know four or five years of experience in working with larger firms and now you've set up your own practice, now I have a lot more faith. In fact, I have more faith in you than I do in the person at the firm because you walked away from a good-paying job. You must know your shit, okay? That's, that's how I look at it as a cold-calculating business person. You must know what you're doing or you wouldn't have left the job like that. Especially if I can verify that you weren't thrown out on your ear. Here's the downside. It's easy to get comfortable. You have a good-paying job. You have benefits. Um, you like what you do. And now, five years later, four years later, whatever, you've got the experience, the knowledge, and you, you start actually running the numbers because you're good at that because you are an accountant. And you realize what you're giving up. See, right now, it's not scary to give it up because you don't have it yet. So I tell, there's another thing I tell young people. When you're going out looking for a job, go for anything, go for everything, be aggressive, and don't worry about losing it because you can't lose what you don't have. And it's easy to be courageous when you have nothing. The more you have, the harder it is to be courageous because now you have something to lose. So you're going to want to be careful if you take the approach of going in as an employee first that you're always thinking about your exit strategy. Then here's my biggest tip for you of all. Beware the non-compete clause, the non-compete agreement, etc. It is highly likely that any one of these firms that you go to work for is going to want you to sign a non-compete clause. You will not go out and snipe their clients. So you get a job, you have a book of business in that job, you have people you see regularly, you leave and do your own thing, you take your black book with you, you call everybody up and go, hey, Frank, you know, I've been doing your taxes for three years. I'd like you to come over and just have me do your taxes for the rest of your life, only it'll be with me, Inc., instead of, you know, big giant service XYZ. Starting my own thing. I have no problem with non-compete agreements that work like that. You cannot take the business with you if you leave. The concern is when you get one that says you cannot work in your industry, that's not going to be likely as an accountant. But what you might get is one that's so broad that it can be construed that anybody within where you're at was one of their clients because they were pursuing business with them. So be very careful your uh, non-compete clause and what they actually mean and how long they're enforced for and how enforceable they are. Because I have seen people in not accounting but similar fields with non-compete clauses that are basically like, well, you can forget working in Texas for like the next two years in your industry at all, period.
And they didn't think it was that stringent when they signed it. So it's something you might want to have an attorney take a look at when they put it in front of you. I, you know, when they make you your offer and offer you, because here's a lot of times what they'll do though. They're sneaky. They'll give you an offer letter and you accept your offer and now you're employed and then they say, here's your non-compete thing, you got to sign this. But we'll take your job away if you don't. And my response to that would be, you were looking for a job when you found this one. You haven't really started yet. I'd like to have my attorney review this and I'll get back to you. And never think you have to sign an non-compete clause the way that it's written. They're almost always negotiable, especially when they're draconian. Uh, I worked for somebody one time, his non-compete and non-disclosure agreement read as such that, honest to God, if I had taken a crap in the middle of the night and it was some kind of artistic piece of crap that somebody wanted in a museum somewhere, his company owned it. And I just basically came back and said, I'm not signing this. And he said, well, you don't sign this, you don't get a job here. I said, then I don't work here. He said, well, what's your concerns? And I basically explained how broad it was, and we came up with a special one that only I had and no one else in the company had because they wanted me to work there. So be careful with that. Otherwise, I think it's probably a good angle with your profession to develop that relevant experience. But do what your heart tells you to do. Well, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I'm calling you from North Carolina today. Hope you and Dorothy are having a good weekend. Some feedback for you. Just wanted to let you know of something that's kind of ridiculous that I saw this uh, afternoon, um, Waynesville Middle School here in North Carolina had a chorus group go up to New York on a school trip. Uh, they were mid-national anthem singing at the 9-11 memorial when they were cut off by security and told they could not sing without a permit to be able to sing at the national memorial for 9-11. Um, I've actually sent an email to you with the links to the video, we vouched it and confirmed that it is actual story. And the video shows they get cut off mid-singing uh, national anthem uh, by security. Just thought it was kind of ridiculous. Saw it being a uh, prime example of uh, state-sponsored school um, in school trying to instill good values, but uh, administration bowing down to the permit process of the state. Uh, apparently, the city of New York and whoever's administering the 9-11 memorial uh, apparently haven't lost their minds. They couldn't wait till the song was actually finished to have the kids stop singing. Thought I'd give you some feedback for the show. Uh, I have sent that email to you so you can see the video for yourself. Hope you're having a good day and appreciate the show. Thank you. Bye. I actually didn't see the email come through for one reason or another. Spam monster, forgetting to use TSPC in the subject line or what, but... I don't need to see it. I have no reason to doubt this. But I'd like to take at least a mildly contrarian view here to cause critical thinking. So, first of all, I'd like to point out, if government wasn't in control of this thing, then it wouldn't really have the problem that it has now, would it? Uh, especially when we start to unpeel the onion here. And I know what people are thinking. It's the, it's the national anthem at a national... How could you... This is the national anthem! Okay, see... When you get like that, what you're saying is that song has special powers. It's magical. It's a hem. It's like religion, right? What if they wanted to be there singing Old MacDonald Had a Farm? Or what if it was a group of Muslim children from a mosque that were singing a song calling on Allah to... Maybe they weren't peaceful Muslims that were there singing. Maybe they were the kind of Muslims that we think did in the first place, and they were calling on Allah to smash it again. 
And they were singing that, making people uncomfortable. Should all of those people be able to sing too? And I know what you're thinking. Common sense, Jack. Aren't you always the one talking about common sense? But see, we're not in the world of common sense here, are we? We're in the world of government-controlled property. Government took tax money to build a monument. Government took tax money to secure a monument. Government took tax money to allocate the space for the monument. Government has taken stolen money to provide this to you. So then government gets to tell you what you can and can't do when you're there. And what government would tell you is you're basically doing a demonstration. That's probably why this was considered demonstrating. Well, what if you had, and I'm not talking about people like me that just question the story of 9-11. I'm talking about the dyed-in-the-wool, Larry Silverstein gave the demolition order for Building 7, completely, totally extreme 9-11 um, conspiracy theorists, they're picketing every day. Would that be okay? Somebody's going there to remember their lost husband or wife or brother or sister. They just want some time to themselves. And you got these people chanting that, the, that they were murdered by George Bush or whatever. Okay? Uh, don't get on me about 9-11 conspiracy theories. Trust me, I think that's a huge, deep rabbit hole that I have not made a final decision on exactly where everything fits in that yet. And I'm probably more open to some of the conspiracy than you would think, but I also think, like, that's not the place for it. That's not the place for it. Somebody that's there, you know, on their, their 15th, uh, would, have, would have been their 15th anniversary as a, as a husband and wife, and their husband's gone. Or something like that, you know? It's not. But isn't that protected under free speech? If demonstrating on the property is permitted, isn't that protected as equal free speech? And shouldn't it be? I mean, honestly, if, if it's a place where it's okay to demonstrate, because that's what singing a national anthem would be there. It's demonstrating in the mind of government. I'm not, don't get mad at me, okay? I'm not saying that that's what it was or that I would view it that way. I'm saying that's what government is saying. And what government may also say is, look, we, we kind of like to let this go. We think this is kind of nice. But the people that we're trying to keep from doing these types of things here would make the case, oh, but see, don't you see? They are allowed to sing. Why can't we hold our, our, our prayer session here? What if they were those, uh, what are the Westboro Baptist people wanted to do that? And, and have a sermon in front of the monument calling, you know, calling on God's wrath because they think that we deserved it. And, and that's the, that's what happens when government controls something is you end up with that situation. Now, what if this was controlled by a private conservatory? that wasn't controlled by government, that could set its own rules based on what the place is. Might those children have been permitted to finish their song? And might they still say, you know what, you can't disturb people here and what you're doing because you're calling on God to smite the, the homosexuals or whatever, while some guy's over here just trying for a You don't get to do that here. Might this be a place where that evil anarchist society would actually be far better run? It's just one way you have to look at these things. When you start saying, well, this group of people should be allowed to do something under, let's say, free speech, then 
every other group that wants to do something similar should be allowed to do it as well. So how do you control a place like the National Monument, 9-11, if you let a little group of kids come in there and sing? Again, I know what I would do. Let them sing. They're not bothering anybody. You're bothering people. You can't do that here. But as a government, I don't really have that latitude now, do I? When you ask government to fix your problems you might find that you don't really like their solutions. And again, I'm not defending what the government did. I'm telling you why the government probably doesn't feel that it can do anything other than what it did. Because we can't say, well, this is sacred. Because it's, it's sacred to me or you, but it's not sacred to this person over there. We can't force someone else to see something as sacred. It's the same debate with the flag. If you destroy a flag, I'll kill you. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, right? It's the same nonsense. That, that, that we are going to take a piece of cloth made in China that somebody bought themselves, that they're going to stand on or desecrate in some way, and have a, a, a national conniption over it. As long as it's not my flag, as long as it's not somebody else's private property was stolen, I don't care what they do to it. Because unless you pay attention, it doesn't have any power. It doesn't actually do anything. I wonder if people think about all the tiny flags at football games and basketball games that are just dropped on the floor and swept away when they get so upset over some jackass on TV standing on a flag in the middle of the street. A $9 Chinese-made piece of crap. You know, We're not talking about a flag that flew over a battlefield. We're not talking about your $9 Chinese flag that they stole from your house. We're talking about a piece of fabric that was in a cheap store. I wonder how many of those get thrown away. They're not properly disposed of. See, this is where this problem comes in. We've come to the belief that some of these things are not sacred to ourselves, but are so sacred that other people must conform to our view of what's sacred. We've made statism into a religion, and this is just one manifestation of it. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Jesse from uh, central Nebraska. I had a question on... You, uh, chemicals on yards. I uh, just recently moved into the house about a year ago. I don't know if they sprayed chemicals on it before, but I have a majestic dandelion forest now, and I was just wondering when it would be a good time to utilize those dandelions and be chemical safe. Uh, and I just had a tip for calling in. Um, I noticed when I take YouTube videos, my sound quality was crap, and then I took the case off my phone, and it cleared it up immensely. So thanks for what you do. Bye. Okay, if they were using any kind of chemical weed stuff at this point, you know the effects are very minimal to none because you've got dandelions everywhere. So I would say just eat it. I mean, that's, that's really the way I would look at it. If you want to use anything off that property, I would go ahead and use it. Unless you have reason to believe otherwise. Unless you know that they were doing something. And I think this is one of those things where we can worry too much. And that the lawn that two years ago was being treated by True Green Chem Lawn that we grow a garden in, I, would I prefer that it wasn't ever that way? Sure. But is the food coming out of it likely to be healthier than anything I can buy at the grocery store? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, unless you know of a specific contamination or something like that, 
I just wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't worry about it at all. And dandelions are a great indicator that that problem's not there, especially if they're healthy, happy, beautiful, wonderful dandelions. Um, when I go to like baseball games and stuff like that for my grandson, and you look at the parks there, you know they're treating that ground. And you'll see a dandelion here and a dandelion there, and they're small and they're unhappy and they don't look healthy. And that's one of the actual saving graces about these chemical treatments, these herbicides. When they're still really active and still really causing problems, it's evident in the vegetation. I'm not saying there couldn't be any kind of a contaminant. You might want to do a soil test. You know, have a soil taste test done for contaminations and see what, what the results are if you have any concerns. I mean, I, I'd be more worried on an old house that, you know, there was lead paint that's, you know, flaked off the house and I got an area with a high lead content uh, or, or something like that uh, than I would about the fact that it may have at some time been sprayed with Roundup. It, it's just, again, I, I try to reinforce this with people are a little bit over the top, and I don't think you are, sir, but some are. I, I can't believe you. Okay, calm down, because every time you go... <sighs> And inhale and exhale, probably about 60,000 toxins just went through your body. And our bodies can deal with toxins. What they have a hard time doing is dealing with heavy amounts of toxins on a regular basis. So I'll eat some tuna, some ocean-caught tuna, but I wouldn't eat it every day because the mercury levels that will build up over time can be quite concerning. That's, that's just how I think you have to look at these things. Good question, though. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is... Matt in Birmingham, with a question about dealing with corruption, uh, things you would normally deal with with the state, uh, without the state, or at least uh, trying to start there. Uh, I've got uh, a guy I was looking at sourcing some meat uh, that's organic, and uh, anyway, uh, looking at his site, I saw that it, he gets his seed from a certain source, and by coincidence, uh, I was riding with a, a senior adult friend who's really oblivious to all of the, uh, you know, GMO-free and organic and all that. And he mentioned that he sells eggs to uh, this other guy uh, who is <laughs> supposed to be the uh, organic certified uh, source for these things. And apparently he's buying eggs from just whomever and reselling them. Uh, you know, as organic, free-range eggs without having to actually go to the trouble to actually raise them uh, properly. And I know for a fact that this guy does not free-range. Uh, they're not tractured. They're not anything, um, you know. Um, anyway, and the meat provider that I was looking at uh, sources this guy as his uh, – source for um, seed for his GMO-free chicken and uh, other things that he sells. So the whole thing has left a really bad taste in my mouth about, first of all, just the corruption. How can you trust anybody besides uh, these kind of things? Uh, but also just how you kind of get a philosophy for dealing with how you would deal with that. I would assume you go to the the meat provider and maybe just ask him about it and just, you know, uh, push him to look into it a little bit and, uh, you know, beyond, you know, going to the state and doing something or at least starting there. Uh, but I'm just curious about what your take is 
on uh, things like that and getting something done in a way that uh, is, you know, dealing with the problem uh, without necessarily uh, just going the quick route of getting the state involved in it or uh, whether you would. Anyway, I appreciate your comments. Thanks. Um, this is exactly the type of thing with, that caused me to uh, conceive of almost five years ago of a thing called AgriTrue, which was a uh, free market alternative to USDA organic. And I'm finally at a point where the people that I had involved with that are no longer a part of it. And that site's under what I would call rapid development now and will be available and hopefully will be one way that we can solve this problem. But here is where we're back again. Once again, when you ask the state to do something, you can bet that it will, abuse will be part of it, whether it's by the state or the participants. And it's due to a false sense of security that you're even so outraged by this and that you feel I have no alternative other than to like beg the guy to stop conducting a bad business practice, which, oh, sure, okay, I'll do because you said so, I'll do that. Or to turn to the man, the government, and say, hey, this guy's using your government label improperly. And if you think about it, that's what he's doing. He's using the government's label improperly. He's labeling food and calling food organic that isn't. Organic was never originally supposed to be something controlled by government. It was a movement. And then the government got involved because, gee, they just have to ruin everything. I mean, think about the government's involvement in marriage. Would you? It, it, let's imagine marriage didn't exist. Let's just imagine for a minute marriage did not exist in, in a legal form. That marriage was just you and somebody else deciding to be together, and people looked at you and said, you know what, okay, they're together, they're a couple, they have joint accounts, they have children, they do the things that families do, they're, they're married, but they're not legally married because there's no such thing. Would you then turn to the person you love and say, you know what, what we got going on is so awesome, so amazing. I just, I cannot believe the government's not involved with us. Could we, could we go to the government and beg them to get involved in our, our relationship? Right? See, so that's what happened with organic, right? Like, we need somebody to make sure that this stuff stays the way it's supposed to be. If there was only a thing that would do that, like, like the free market. So, like, within AgriTrue, my, my belief was that What you do is you make sure that all producers can be rated by their actual customers, and every single product is linked back to the actual producer, not a middleman. So that when you get a product and it's got an AgriTrue you know, uh, QR code on it, you scan it, you can see exactly where it came from. It came from Tom, not Phil. Phil, who was sold to you at the farmer's market, was a middleman. Should have disclosed that to you. Now you can go review that. Phil is reselling AgriTrue product without disclosing it. Or... Hey, I found out that, 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 that Tom that produced this is using GMO, even though he's not supposed to be, under this label and in claims. And you have an open review system. So I don't know if it would do you any good, but you might want to at least go talk to this guy and say, hey, look, you're selling this stuff that's organic. It's not, and you know it. You really shouldn't be doing this and see what he says. Don't threaten him or what have you. But, I mean, there are review systems out there. Um, that you could actually post reviews on. There's Better Business Bureau, which is fundamentally useless, but at least you can post reviews. But see, then what you're doing is you're basically threatening the guy, if you don't do this, I will slander you. And, I, and, and, and you really don't have much of a reach to get it done with, do you? And most of the people that are being affected will never hear it. So then you're back with the only way to make this guy stop doing what he's doing is to call the enforcers in. And here's how I look at it. 
It is their label. It's not your label. It's not my label. It's the enforcer's label. It belongs to the government. I know we are the government. No, we're not. We are not the government. The government is the government, and we are their subjects. That's how they look at us. So you're in a quandary. Does this bother you enough to basically turn the guy in to the U.S. Department of Organic or whatever the hell it is you do it to? Or do you just say to yourself, this label no longer means anything? See, I think that's what we're getting to with organic. This label no longer means anything. And that's how most things happen when government gets involved. The false sense of security leads to the devaluation of it over the longer term. See, what people expect is, oh, if it says organic, the government promised that it's at least these things. It has to be. As though passing a law makes things happen. It can make things happen, but... It doesn't make everything happen. What if the government tomorrow passed a law that said every citizen gets a rainbow? And the way your rainbow will be delivered is by a magical unicorn that will have the same name you do who will live in your house. And you'll get a magical unicorn that will fart rainbows whenever you want a rainbow. And if you really need something, after the rainbow farts, gets farted out of the unicorn's ass, your guardian angel will slide down the rainbow and grant you your wish. They can pass a law that says that, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. They can pass a law that says it's completely legal for you to put your penis in a beehive. That's the law. You're allowed to do it, and the bees are not allowed to sting you. Would you put your penis in a beehive just because they passed a law that said that? And the answer is, no, I'm not doing that. Unless you make a little bee suit from a penis, maybe I'll think about it as a joke. All right? See, so when we take it to the extreme... Right? We get accused of doing a straw man fallacy. We take it to the extreme for the purpose of revealing the underlying flaw, and then we can examine the underlying flaw. So we have to ask the case, is the reason that people are willing to go ahead and do what this man is doing is because it's so easy to do, because the consumer has no concern whatsoever as long as they see a little bitty label, because government made a law that said that label has to do the following. And I think the answer is yes. So I think the solution is for us to continue to develop local food and full disclosure. Because if you want to buy those eggs, I don't want to prevent you from buying them. But I do want you to be able to find out how they were produced. And I think that's where we're at now. So I'm, I, I wouldn't turn the guy in. I would probably go, you were going to buy meat from this guy. So I'd probably go back to him and say, you know what? This is what I want you to know. Not going to do business with you. Because I saw you do this. So now to me, I have to question everything you claim. And I don't give my business to dishonest merchants. And be the free market. That's the best solution here that I have for you. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Max in St. Louis. I just wanted to share a quick anecdote about automation that I experienced uh, last weekend while I was in Washington, D.C., at the DCA airport now, the food court is almost entirely automated. You go up to one of the stalls to McDonald's or Pizza Hut or wherever, and there's no cashier to greet you. There's just a iPad that you touch to order on. Then it prints you a ticket, and then they hand you your food, and then you can go to another stall or to the newsstand and get a paper and get a soda and whatever, and once you're done, you can shop at anything you want. There's self-checkouts all down at the end, uh, a whole row of them. So for, you know, 12 restaurants and a newsstand and uh, 
Hudson News and whatever else is down there, there were two cashiers, two cashiers right next to all the automated self-checkouts. There were two cashiers for anyone who couldn't figure it out. So it was almost an exact example of everything you've been talking about with the automation uh, right there in in our nation's capital, in the D.C. airport. Uh, also on the weekend, we used Uber, we used uh, kiosk at the DC Metro. Uh, we hardly had to deal with a customer service person uh, for an entire four-day trip. So uh, it's it's not coming. It's already here. Uh, thanks for all you do. Uh, have a great show. And you know how I say all these kiosks and things like that are not just because of minimum wage issues? That That's not why McDonald's is putting them in or whatever. It's because you have to deal with people. It doesn't mean that uh, a higher wage floor doesn't increase the speed at which people will do this because they have to because they can't afford the body count anymore. And the, the more expensive the body count gets and the less expensive the technology gets, the faster the implementation will go. Why do I say this? Because, dear friends, what is the minimum wage in Washington, D.C.? $11.50 an hour. So the lowest wage you can pay the, the, the most fundamentally useless employee that you have is $11.50 an hour in D.C. That's significantly higher than the national minimum wage of, what, $7.25. Or even a lot of states have done their own minimum wages around the $8 range. So what that tells you right there is that that might be why it showed up there first. So that's just an aside. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. It isn't here. Like I keep saying it's coming, and, and this guy's saying, well, I just saw it. It's here. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. This is the first generation of this technology being rolled out. It, it's gonna, I'm telling you, it's going to get to this. This is the kind of point it's going to get to. There'll be two ways you grocery shop. Neither of them will involve people. The, the aisles will generally be stocked by the same types of robots that move stuff around at Amazon.com right now. Or they'll they'll move entire sets and then they'll just be kind of prettied up by people. And you'll either go to the grocery store and you'll put a bunch of items in your cart and you'll have bags that you'll just bag and stack your stuff into. And it'll all be packaged up and you'll just walk out of the store. That's that's where that's where we're gonna go with this. And you will be charged by intelligent computers that know exactly what you have. And you'll see a little thing right before you leave. Amount, blah, 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 with a list. Okay or no? If you say no, you're going to be unpacking all your stuff and trying to prove your case to the one guy that still works there, the security guard at the front of the door. Okay? And most of the time, people just go, yes, and they're just going to walk right out the door and go home. The other way is you're going to have an app. You're going to pick all your shit. You're going to pull up to a special place at the side of the grocery store, and maybe an employee will be there, and they will hand you four or five bags, You'll put them in your car, and you will go home. It will be one of the, and I'm, I'm saying it's going to be either or. Those are going to be your choices. It's not like one of those will become the way, because some people are still, I don't know what I want. I mean, when I go to the grocery store, uh, I'd be better off with the app, because I end up buying all kinds of crap that I didn't go there to get, right? And I usually forget the one thing that I needed. Um, But that's the kind of technology we're talking about. This place with the mall at the airport, and you can go like to Hudson News or get a set of earbuds because they won't give them to you on a plane anymore or whatever. Um, you're not even going to go to a cashier at the end. You're not even going to go to a self-checkout. You're going to pick your phone up and, and, and basically click a buy button. And now it's yours. You can leave with it. 
And it'll be a security mechanism that when you've purchased it, will be deactivated and you can leave without setting off an alarm. I mean, this is the this is just the beginning. I, I we covered the anesthesiologist machine, and people said, "See, it failed because people didn't use it." They didn't fail. They didn't fail. The the AMA got involved, and uh, some other union. Yeah, the AMA, American Medical Association, is a labor union, uh, and basically used a fear campaign to keep it from being used. But it worked just fine. It did everything it was supposed to do. So we can even automate. I mean, anesthesiologist is a very important person in a surgery. It's it's as important as the surgeon, especially for certain complex surgeries. There's plenty of people that die not because the surgeon messed up, because the anesthesiologist messed up. So it's just beginning. It's just beginning. And here's an interesting thing. So the the thing I did on our anarchism last week, where I compared it to things like, you know, when people say, how would we, and we haven't even tried yet, it would be like, you know... How would we get to the moon when the Wright brothers first flew the plane? And one of the big objections to the video of that that I put on YouTube is you can't compare human nature to technology. I'd like to point out that you absolutely you absolutely can see a correlation between advanced technologies that enable ease of living and enable abundance for people and more ethical human behavior. If we look at our history segments, there was a time in England where as a game Kids took a cat, hung it up on a pole, and beat it to death. And no one seemed to have a problem with this. Do do you you think that that would be considered okay in this day and age? Well, times have changed. Technology has changed the times. They were in the middle of the Black Death. People were falling over and dying from the Black Death all over the world. People would get the Black Death and cough their lungs up 24 hours later. You ain't got time to worry about a kid beating a cat. The view of life and death and morality was totally different. Because things were so hard. As we get to places where everybody can at least eat, everybody can at least have a roof over their head, everybody that wants to at least can have the basics, and the more that's enabled by technology, the less we are willing to allow people to do horrible things. What do you think would happen if any modern nation went to war, and when they killed the enemy they put their heads on pikes on the road leading into the town that they captured today. Do you think people would be okay with it? Because they were. Because they used to be. See, so what you actually see is, as technology and innovation move forward and enable humans to have a better life, we actually have less problems and therefore less need of government. I think the two are completely related to each other absolutely completely related to each other technology doesn't scare me government with technology scares me and on that note the movie about edward snowden is about to come out soon and there's a trailer that came out today i put on facebook i'll put a link in today's show notes on that note if you want to see why technology that the government already has scares me take a look at that and it's coming from oliver stone And I think that's the only reason that this movie is going to be able to be made, because that guy can get away with pretty much anything. Um, And I think it's going to have a huge impact on people. This is one for your sheep buddies, guys. Like, they won't listen to you when you talk about all this stuff. Let's just go to a movie together, man. Let's just go see the Snowden movie and see what really happened, dude. And just don't, don't inject shit. Let them watch it. Let them watch it. Anyway, let's take another one. 
Hi, Jack and Shane calling from the eastern plains of Colorado. I'm calling about amending the soil in my backyard. Um, I've got about a sixth of an acre back there. I'm in zone 5B. Um, soil in Colorado is horrible. Uh, if you don't have black, hard, super hard clay, uh, you have super sandy soil. I've got the super sandy soil that can't hold water worth a darn and dries out super, super fast. Um, I've had my soil tested. Um, I've got a lot of plans to plant um, just any, any number of perennials and trees and bushes. I've got quite the, the permaculture design in my head um, involving swales and uh, quite a bit, but I would really like to start with a really great base. Um, I had the soil tested. I got the results back. Um, severely lacking in nitrogen and rather acidic soils. Um, those I don't think are too difficult to fix. Uh, the biggest problem is there's almost no organic matter whatsoever in the soil. It's just it's just very uh, almost sterile. Just um, yeah, like I said, super sandy. Um, I've got access to bulk compost. Uh, very cheaply delivered to my house. So my plan was to spread several inches of compost over the whole yard and just till it all into the soil and just um, just till in the, the kind of field grass that's back there. And um, My plan is to just do that and then overseed with uh, clover to continue to fix the nitrogen problem. Um, can sheet mulch um, and stuff in the future, you know, uh, just kind of keep and maintain maintain the property, maintain what I'm doing. But it just seems to me that this would be a really great plan to just very quickly get a large amount of organic matter down into the soil, um, fixing a lot of the issues that I've got going on. Um, I know that disturbing the soil this much is going to cause a lot of weeds and all sorts of things that I really don't want to grow to just go gangbusters. Uh, like I said, I don't plan on tilling it ever again, um, but I know that that's what's going to be the result of this. So my question is, what else should I plant? Um, like, what what would you suggest I do beyond just the uh, clover um, to kind of just help keep uh, all this stuff at bay? Um, in addition to that, uh, what else would you suggest I do to amend the soil? Um, like, what what other what other things could I do to to just really get this get this backyard into a, into really great shape and have this really great base layer to start from. Thanks. I uh, really look forward to hearing your answer. Talk to you later. Bye. Um, I wouldn't till. I don't think you have any need to till. I think that the, the concept that we have to till things into the soil is very outdated and unnecessary, especially in the situation you're in. Uh, since you can get bulk compost cheap, I would put four or five inches of compost down. And I would sheet, scatter mulch, whatever you can do on top of that, wood chips or whatever, especially in certain areas that you want to really improve. And from that point, uh, I would I would probably plant some seed. I would put about half the compost down, maybe three-quarters of compost down, and then seed and then put about another inch, half inch of compost over your seed. And then irrigate it um, to get those roots into the ground. And let nature do the rest, because what's going to happen is you're going to have all kinds of soil organisms that are going to do all the tilling for you. There's there's no need to till that stuff. 
Now, if you were going to make a garden spot, you might till that one time uh, to, to, to accelerate things again, and, and that would be acceptable uh, as far as I'm concerned. You also might just sheet mulch the shit out of it and go on with your life and let nature do what nature does. As far as what else to plant, you, look, this is where people just get too worried. Go to groworganic.com, click on cover crop and pasture seeds there, and look up what grows in your region. And then of those things, plant the things that you want that grows in your region. You're probably going to want a dormant alfalfa might be a good thing to include in there. Find the right kind for your region, which which type of dormant alfalfa would be best. Um, clover, definitely. Uh, grasses, whatever grows in your area. And again, trust nature. In the end, you've got to trust nature with this stuff. Um, as far as the sand being a problem, the sand is actually great because what it's going to allow is any perennials are going to be extremely, extremely deep-rooted. And that's going to make them quite drought-tolerant because we often think of sand as being very dry. But if we do other things, you find that it's very dry for an inch or two, and then it's a little bit moist and a little bit moister and a little bit moister. and just keeps getting wetter and wetter the deeper we go. Um, we have to reduce evaporation, and we have to uh, do that by reducing so, you know, how much sun it's taking directly on the ground, and we have to do that by blocking wind. Those are the things that you're going to have to do in this area and think about where you're doing more intense plantings. But that's what I would do. Now, another thing you might consider is using some bentonite as a soil amendment before you bring in the compost. Uh, a sprinkling of that stuff can do some pretty amazing things. And then if you do that, you may wish to till that in, at least till it in uh, to like just a couple inches deep. How much? I'm not sure of the application rates. You'd want to get some information on that. You actually might, believe it or not, want to use a wetting agent as well. Because a lot of time, a lot of the sand, like the reason it just drains so fast, it doesn't actually get wet. It just, just the, the particles go through. It doesn't there? There is some absorbability in sand. If there wasn't, you'd never hold wet sand in your life. Some of these places, especially in dry climates like Colorado, the surface layer, uh, sometimes as much as a foot, has gotten to be what you call hydrophobic. It's not just that it's not a very absorbent material. It actually is repelling water. So a wetting agent and bentonite amendment might be really helpful. And there's an old permaculture video that I'm going to recommend you watch. I think the resolution on it on YouTube is like 144. I've never been able to find it uh, anywhere else. I, I, it, I, this is so old. The first time I saw it, it was on Google Video before Google owned YouTube and migrated everything over. It's still on YouTube, and I have a link in today's show notes today. It's called Backyard Permaculture, and it's by an Australian guy with kind of like a white guy fro, a little afro going on. Lots of great information in that about small scale, you know, suburban permaculture. But he's dealing with, with dirt, soil that's, it's not really sandy, but it's very much the same problem. It's like dust. It's gutless. It won't hold moisture. And he amends it with bentonite and a wetting agent. He shows exactly how he does it. So I'd really recommend that. Uh, but I would minimally till, and I wouldn't for a minute think you need to till compost in. That's not necessary. Um, and definitely if you can come across a good supply of wood chips, get those down. And if you want to till compost in because you don't agree with me, that's okay. It'll be fine. It really will. It's okay. Go ahead and do it. In fact, if, if it brings a bunch of weeds up, you know, it's roots. It's a start. It's a root net. Um, as long as it's not something like bindweed or something like that, you know, you can, you can deal with just about anything. 
Um, but if you get wood chips, do not if you till wood chips and you make concrete, you really do. Wood chips go on the top, not not in the ground. And I think those two together would work really good for you. So with that, we'll uh, we'll wrap up for the day. Um, I want to remind you guys again about the TSP Business Directory at tspbiz.com. You can check that out. Today's featured member of the directory is Ninja Prepper. They provide multifunction titanium products focused on function stacking and durability. You can check them out in our directory or at ninjaprepper.com. And I'll tell you what, I have Ninja Prepper products. I do. They are awesome. The titanium little cup and everything, they're really, really high-quality stuff. And uh, it's a great small business. I've actually met the owner at Elijah Springs in West Virginia. And you might want to check out what they got going on. Um, they also do a discount for members of our support brigade as well. So you can get a discount by using the MSB. So on that note, do consider becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support uh, Brigade. If you do that, you support the show. If you think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining. And the discounts will more than pay for your membership. I'm telling you, if you're buying stuff like we talk about here, it more than pays for itself. You want to support us, but you don't want to be a member, or you are a member already, you still want to support us. If you buy anything on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com before you go there. That's it. All you got to do, just type in tspaz. Com, and it's one letter less than Amazon.com. It's actually less work. You'll spend the same money. Amazon will look just the same, but we'll get credit for what you buy on Amazon. How cool is that? Easiest way I have ever come up with for you guys in the audience to help support the show and the work that I do. And Amazon gets free advertising out of it every day. Isn't that great? Um, next up, I want to uh, talk to you about today's closing song. And uh, not really about the meaning of the song, but like why I picked it. So what you're going to hear today is Tequila Sunrise but not the one by the Eagles, one by Alan Jackson. It's off an album that a bunch of country artists did quite a few years ago now. So long ago that it almost feels like when I remember thinking about the Eagles as an old band in the late 80s that, that the Common Threads came out, right? Um, and uh, Alan Jackson was one of many uh, you know, headliner country artists that did a song on that. Um, Clint Black did a song on there. He did a really good version of, of the song he did as well. But I, I, I chose this because I like looking at lineages, and I think it's safe to say if if the Eagles were formed today, if the same guys, you know, Don Henley and and, and Joe Walsh, et cetera, were you know 20 years old today, and they were just coming on the scene, and they had the same taste of music they did back then, they'd be in country music. That was kind of the point of Common Threads, that. Country music evolved out of what we consider classic rock. And some say for good, some say for ill. And I say there's great music coming out today and there's total crap coming out today. Um, but I also think it's great when somebody that doesn't need to do a cover does a cover because they recognize the quality of what came before them. And that's what Common Threads was all about. So if you if you don't own that album, you can get it on iTunes or whatever. Or if you've never heard of it, check it out. You might like it. And here you go, Alan Jackson with Tequila Sunrise. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's another tequila sunrise Staring slowly across the sky 
I said goodbye And he was just a hired hand Working on the dreams he'd planned to try The days go by And every night when the sun goes down Just another lonely boy in town And she's out running round She wasn't just another woman And I couldn't keep from coming on It's been so long It's a hollow feeling When it comes down to dealing friends It never ends Another shot of courage Wonder why the right words never come You're just getting up It's another tequila sunrise This old world still looks the same Another frame 